Thank you for listening to this sermon from Seven Springs Presbyterian Church. If you want to learn more about us, please find us on Facebook or visit us at sevenspringspresbyterian.com. We'll be in uh, 2 Samuel chapter 15 this evening. Um, And to begin with, we'll uh, take a little bit of a history lesson. Don't worry, I'm not going to ask you any questions, but uh, maybe you already know the answers. But uh, Aaron Burr, Aaron Burr was the... uh, Third vice president, uh, Thomas Jefferson served as the uh, president of the United States, and uh, his vice president was Aaron Burr. Actually, uh, Thomas Jefferson and uh, Aaron Burr had a quite an interesting relationship just before in uh, 1800. Uh, they both ran uh, for the vice presidentship, um, but they actually an interesting uh, piece of information. They actually tied. And it went to the House, and the House sided with uh, Jefferson. Uh, he became the uh, vice president and president. Um, he uh, was part of the um, Democratic-Republican Party, if you, if you could imagine. Uh, that was the name of the party he ran with. But uh, he has this interesting relationship with Jefferson because he ran against him, but then Jefferson became president, and then Aaron Burr became vice president. And uh, Aaron Burr is really known for one big thing, and that is, uh, especially by the young kids now, not because they know history, because there's a musical called Hamilton about Alexander Hamilton, and that uh, ends with a duel. Uh, actually, it was illegal at this time, but they would go out um, and you know pace out and then turn around and uh, you know have a duel, a good old-fashioned duel. Um, but and uh, Aaron Burr is the person who shot uh, Alexander Hamilton. However, this is where most people think that his story uh, ends, where I think it just gets even better from this point. Aaron Burr uh, flees from that time. Really, the East Coast is where it is, about 1804, 1805, around that era. And they've just opened up. With the Louisiana Purchase and going westward, the frontier they called it. So Aaron Burr ran and fl- flee, uh, fled uh, during this time, and he goes um, and lives over there for some time. And uh, during this time, he is communicating with uh, people in other states, and and during this area, he's really trying to um, raise a lot of people to uh, be on his side. Uh, he talks with international um, uh, friends, I guess you would say. But eventually he, um, I, I would really like to find more about this, but eventually he gets charged with treason in about 1808. And uh, he is charged with treason, and, and yet another interesting layer to this uh, fact that uh, in the Constitution, I think it's the third article, specifically talks about treason. And... Uh, so he gets charged with treason, but then there becomes a, a big legal question. Well, what is treason? How do you get charged with treason? He has all these plans in place, so it seems. Can you get charged with treason if you haven't actually committed violence? If you have, actually haven't carried it out? Um, so there's a good question for you. Um, but uh, a great article, uh, a great uh, you know, person to study and, and interested in U.S. law, and uh, he sounds like quite a character. 
Uh, I have a book I'm going to start reading to find out more about him. But I, I don't say this not merely just to be able to uh, pass this information, although I did find it interesting. Uh, but I, I see a lot of similarities But what happens to Aaron Burr and Absalom in Second Samuel. And as we'll see tonight, that we actually see all these things starting to eventuate. As we looked at last time, we saw, you know, that Absalom... After being uh, shown grace by the king, how does he act? Well, he starts acting like a king. He has his chariot with his 50 horse uh, and his men that run, uh, his horses and his 50 men that run before him. He, he's, he's working politically at the city gate trying to make everybody favor him as king. As, wouldn't it be great if Absalom were king or even if he was just a judge? But he then acts like the king as well, passing judgments for people. So I think there are similarities between Aaron Burr and um, Absalom. You can uh, make up your mind whether he, he commits treason. Hopefully we'll see at the end what uh, happens of this section tonight. But this has all been after that, 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 that kiss of forgiveness, you might say. That pardon given by the king. And Absalom had stolen the hearts of the people. Now, we find out as we turn to verse 7, that at the end of four years, Absalom said to the king, Please let me go and pay my vow that I have vowed to the Lord in Hebron. So he's going along, he's going along riding his chariot with his 50 men before him, looking like a king. He's, he's, um, he's uh, taking shots at the king. Uh, planting all these seeds, and now uh, he's acting like the king. All of these types of things he's doing, and we find out it's happening over a large period of time. It's not he's just doing this for a day or two. He's doing this for a large period of time. We find out it's four years. So back to this uh, timeline again. We're getting close to the end. But here you see that a, a large amount of time has passed, um, up to this point, he was allowed into the king's presence after seven years. And now we have up to 11 years after all these events have taken place that he's slow and patient in what he's doing. And after four years of being able to be in the presence of the king, being able to ride around in his, horse, uh, his chariot, he goes and asks the king that he may go and pay a vow, which I vow to the Lord in Hebron. Now, four years of riding around in your chariot, asking about where is your justice, wouldn't it be great if someone could hear you? Having people come and pay homage to him, four years is a long time. It's a very long time, especially in the political sphere. But even you can see here, the, the narrator is focusing on Absalom. Really, Amnon was really just the start, but it was Absalom who's the main person that uh, the narrator, the the author is is focusing on during this. That he's doing all this political maneuvering during this time. But what does he do? As now he's acted like king before others, questioned the king's justice or lack thereof. He's uh, had people pay homage to him. Now he acts like a true believer. That he goes and asks the king that he might be able to go and pay a vow, which I vowed to the Lord in Hebron. For your servant vowed a vow while I lived in Geshur in Aram, 
saying, If the Lord indeed bring me back to Jerusalem, then I will offer worship to the Lord. So Absalom comes back. He's allowed in Jerusalem. He's been in Jerusalem a long period of time. Remember, this is probably six years he's been allowed in Jerusalem. Um, Yet he hasn't fulfilled this vow that he has made. But he seeks to be able to go to Hebron to make an offering to the Lord. Now, this is loaded with information. But also, with that information, then we get further questions. We'll begin with the questions. The author points out that it's been four years. This vow was made uh, with God, that he makes a condition. If God was to bring him back, then he will go and make an offering to the Lord. So, why hasn't he done this? Why has it been? It's been six years since he's been back in Jerusalem. Why now? Why is he seeking to be able to go to Hebron to be able to make an offering to the Lord? That then leads to the second question. Why Hebron? If you made a vow to the Lord in Geshur, why would you then choose Hebron to be the place where you would make that offering? You're in Jerusalem. Jerusalem is where the Ark of the Lord is. Jerusalem is where the the priest would be to be able to make that offering as well. And we'll see as we go further into this chapter that the ark is is central to to David and his ministry and his life. But also, God is everywhere. Why Hebron? Why does he specifically wish to go make an offering at Hebron? This is why I think it's great to be able to go through, as we have, as we've gone through 1 Samuel very slowly and 2 Samuel as well, that we've seen all of these large chunks of time. Why is Hebron important? Remember, where was king? It's a, it's a rich history. Where was David king before he became king in Jerusalem? He was king in Hebron for seven years. So it, it's, it's, it's a political post, you might say. But not only just for David, but this is where... Abraham settled after separating from Lot. Lot went down to Sodom and Gomorrah, set up his tent outside of the city. And where does Abraham go, or Abram at that point? He separates and he settles in Hebron. This is actually where Abraham was buried, along with all the other patriarchs. And then you think about Joshua. Joshua coming in and conquering the land. And there's five kings that he conquers as he comes in and conquers the land. One of them, one of these headquarters, these capital cities, you might say, is in Hebron. And he eventually comes up and he gives that to Caleb. But again, back to David. This is very important. This is where David was king for seven years. As he fought with Ishbosheth, David served as king in Hebron. Now, these are important questions. Why Hebron? Why after this time? Now, I think we're given some information to be able to help us. We're given information that should make us a little bit concerned. Here we see Absalom utter the word Yahweh three times. Now, this is the only time that we see Yahweh on the lips of Absalom. Now, this is concerning when you think about this situation. 
The only time he uses God's name is for his own advantage, for his own plans and his schemes. The only time he uses the word Yahweh is for blasphemy. The second piece of information that is helpful is that this is the second time he has done something like this. Remember back in chapter 13. What does he do? He goes to the king and he requests something of the king. We see this in chapter 13, verse 23 and 24. After two full years, again, I think the author is making this connection with after the four years and after the two full years, Absalom had sheep shears at Baal Hazor, which is near Ephraim. And Absalom invited all the king's sons. And Absalom came to the king and said, Behold, your servant has sheep shears. Please let the king and his servants and go with your servant. So, The author makes a connection after a period of time, after two years, now after four years. He goes and makes a request before the king. For two years, Absalom has been planning the death of his brother Amnon. Now four years, he's been planning this. And what does he say? He's going to serve or worshiping the Lord. Now before we get to the response, we should have a word of caution. The difference between what is said and done externally might be insignificant or not important or not as noticeable. We saw this with Saul. Saul would occasionally use Yahweh's name, but often it was used in a sense of getting what he wants. This common language, you might say, the Lord bless you. But the Lord's name only came on his lips when it suited him. He dressed the part. He spoke the part. So externally, you might not notice any difference between that of a true believer and a false believer. But again, we're reminded of what the Lord told Samuel as he went up and he saw uh, David's brother, Eliam. Do not look on his appearance or the height of his stature, because I have rejected him. For the Lord sees not as man sees. Man looks at the outward appearance, but God, the Lord, looks at the heart. And this is why we should always be asking hard, heart-probing questions of ourselves, honest questions of ourselves. Why am I doing this? Why am I saying these words or, or acting this way? What is the motive of my heart? And one challenging question I think I always ask myself. If no one else was watching, would I be the same? Would I do the same things? Or is it because people are watching that I think I need to be able to do these certain things, act a certain way. A great caution. Because externally, 
I don't think you could tell Absalom much. We, we get the, the, the advantage of having all of Scripture. We get the advantage of having uh, the Holy Spirit-inspired author writing what is happening, pointing things out that we might be able to look at and say, this is the only time he says Yahweh. But his request that I might be able to go and make an offering to Yahweh because I vowed a vow. But the last time Absalom came and asked the king for a request, the king turned around and said no. No. Just following that verse that we looked at before. But the king said to Absalom, No, my son, let us not all go, lest we be burdensome to you. He pressed him. But he would not go, but gave him his blessing. Then Absalom said, If not, please let my brother Amnon go with us. And the king said to him, Why should he go with you? But Absalom pressed him until he let Amnon and all the king's sons go with him. But now he comes to David and says, Let me go to Hebron that I may be able to go and make an offering to the Lord because I vowed a vow to him. The first time, King David said no. He pressed, pressed him again, and then he gave him his blessing. It's only the third time, after a lot of but him pressing him. And he didn't even go. King, the king didn't even go. David doesn't do this this time. Now, speculation is, is, we're not told. So anything that we can say is, is merely just that, speculation. Is this again that discipline that is lacking from David now after what has happened with Uriah the Hittite? He doesn't feel like he can have his hand. Maybe Absalom is just a great actor. Maybe David is older. You don't know. But this time, David doesn't say no. He tells him in verse 9, Go in peace. And he arose and went to Hebron. Now, there's another parallel to this passage, not David in chapter 13. But this is a parallel of opposites. Now, Hannah, all the way back to 1 Samuel chapter 1. Remember, she vows a vow to the Lord. And after she vows a vow to the Lord, Eli comes and sends her in peace. 1 Samuel chapter 1 verse 11. And she vowed a vow and said to the Lord of hosts, If you will indeed look on the affliction of your servant, remember me and do not forget your servant, but will give to your servant a son. And I will give him to the Lord all the days of his life. And no razor shall touch his head. She vows a vow and again she comes with the Lord in humility. Lord, if you give me a son, he, he will be yours. And then, remember that interaction with Eli. And Eli turns around and tells her, go in peace. The God of Israel grants your petition that you have made to him. Now, both people get exactly what they want. Both people get exactly what they want. What they want 
in their life. Hannah gets a son whom she devotes to the Lord. Absalom wants to go to Hebron that he might be able to be made king. But yet, yet there's another caution for us as well. Sometimes we get exactly what we want. And that is not always a good thing. And just because we get it doesn't mean it's a good thing. But David, he turns to his son after being asked this. And he says, Elek, Shalom, go in peace. I want you to think about those words because these are last recorded words that David utters to his son, Absalom. We have no other further interactions between David and Absalom. These are the last recorded words. As he says to his son, Go in peace. But now, he continues to act. He acts like a traitor. Verse 10 and 12, to 12. But Absalom sent secret messengers throughout all the tribes of Israel saying, as soon as you hear the sound of the trumpet, then say, Absalom is king at Hebron. With Absalom went 200 men from Jerusalem who were invited guests. And they went in their innocence and knew nothing. And while Absalom, Absalom was offering the sacrifices he sent for Ahithophel, the Gileonite, David's counselor from his city, Gilo. And the conspiracy grew strong. And the people of Absalom kept increasing. In all of this, we just see that Absalom is just an actor. We ultimately now find out what he truly wants. That Absalom was kissed by David in 2 Samuel 14, verse 33. Then he goes and buys a chariot. Absalom was blessed by David. And what does he do? He goes and gets secret messengers. Now I think there's something very interesting about this. Is you notice that verse 10 becomes verse before verse 11. I think that seems like a simple thing to say. But notice the, the sequence of events. Before he leaves for Hebron, he's already planning what he's going to be doing in Hebron. Which shows to us that, that period of four years. That merely he's not just accidentally bought a chariot. He's not accidentally questioning the king's justice system. He's not accidentally letting people pay homage to him. It's all a part of his plan. Again, that Amnon is, is the impatient person who needs to have what he wants right away. Absalom is the opposite. He will wait until he gets what he wants. But he will plan to get what he wants in the end. But now, Absalom is blessed by the king. Go in peace. And he goes and finds and sends for secret messengers. Now this is the only time the ESV translates this word, secret messengers. Almost always, it is translated as spies. That is, 
Remember that time when they send the spies in to spy out the land in the land of Canaan? This word is the word that is used here. Not secret messengers. Not just people who being quiet. There's more a deliberate nature of, of cloaking something. But we finally see why he needs and wants to go to Hebron. Absalom is king in Hebron. Is the message, message that they all need to shout. He had stolen their hearts. And now he plans to steal the kingdom. As he took things into his own hands with Amnon, now he does the same here. He brings 200 men from Jerusalem. He invites them with him. Now the author, I think Nathan at this point, shows that they have nothing to do with this. Highlighting, it is really Absalom who is the key player in all of this. His desires, his, his motives. There's the secret messengers that he goes and sends for. But these these 200 men that go from Jerusalem, um, uh, Nathan points out, they went in their innocence and knew nothing. This is all Absalom's doing. And again, we notice that Absalom is merely just using people as, as pawns on a chess game. They're well thought out chess player. Now this is a great difference between David and Absalom. Absalom, everyone is used as a tool to be able to get what he wants. He will use and abuse people. However, I think you see the opposite of David. David is, is, is a shepherd who seeks to be able to lay down his life. That he wouldn't get th- take things into his own hands. But he cares for the people. Remember the, the, the group of people that came and started gathering around David when he first started fleeing from Saul. They were all outcasts. No one in society want them, but here David is, caring for them. Absalom would have looked at these people and said, Great! This will fit into my plan. My, my, the kingdom is closer to me now than it was before. However, David was not like that at all. And I think a prime person of this pawn in this chess game is Ahithophel. You might say he's a Shakespearean character. I'm sure you could write a play about him. But Ahithophel is called to be able to meet him in Hebron. Now we're told two things about Ahithophel. First, he was a Gileonite. He was from his city, uh, Gilo. These are from the mountains in southern Judah. We're told about him, but the second thing we're told about him is that he's David's counselor. Now, this is the first time in a very long time that King David is called King David. Pointed out that often he's just referred to as, as the king. So I think this makes a connection that, that he's more than just some official that David has. There's a personal connection, I think, here. 
But then we're also told not only did he's a David's, but he's a counselor. The Talmud explains this of Ahithophel, whose great wisdom was not received in humanity as a gift from heaven, and so became a stumbling block to him. We see this in Second Samuel chapter 16. Now in those days, the counsel of Ahithophel gave was as if one consulted the word of God. So it was all the counsel of Ahithophel esteemed, both by David and by Absalom. Now, there's one other subtle thing that we might be able to see about Ahithophel. And that is that he's uh, Bathsheba's grandfather. Now, I tend to believe this, and I think most scholars tend to lean at this. You've got to connect a couple of dots. It's not, and I think that's why there's a little bit of hesitation. That why wouldn't you just say this out front? But in Second Samuel chapter 23, we see uh, Eliphilet, the son of uh, Has, Hasbai, of Makkah, and Elam, Eliam, the son of Ahithophel, the Gileanite. So you see here, um, you must suspect that this is the same Ahithophel. But then you come back to First, Second Samuel chapter 11, when David sends about Bathsheba, and one says, Is this not Bathsheba, the daughter of Eliam, the wife of Uriah the Hittite? So here the author doesn't make that connection and, and make you, you've got to be able to connect those dots. So this is why some people say that Ahithophel is quick to be able to, um, to jump ship of David's loyalty and go and join Absalom. That he fought, sought a way to be able to betray David, payback you might say, for what he did to his granddaughter for murdering Uriah. This, is a, of course, is speculation we're not told specifically. But now what you have is the keys for successful overthrowing. The, the plot, it's thickening. You have a fearless leader, check, Absalom. He looks like a king. He, he's, he's got flowing hair that weighs, you know, 200 shekels in the king's weight. You've got loyal people. Check. You've got the people that are, that are watching Absalom right in and out, hearing about their injustice that's happening to them, that he's stolen their hearts. You've got a significant event here now at Hebron where once the trumpets blew, all the spies in all the surrounding towns would cry out, Absalom is king in Hebron. You've got these 200 men who are going there to uh, Absalom's party again in Hebron. Who seem loyal to Absalom. They're blind to what is happening. But from the outside appearance, they look like they're serving Absalom. And now you have a big name, Ahithophel. The one whose counsel is like the counsel of the word of God. And whose side does he choose? It's Absalom. You might start, people from the outside might be starting to look. Yeah, David's justice system 
isn't very just. There's no judge to hear many cases. Ahithophel, who's got a close relationship with David, is not even serving with him. Why is he going to serve Absalom? Maybe he knows something that I don't, and he's always been right before. If it was a picture today, Ahithophel would have been the person standing right on the right-hand side of David as he signed all the legislation into being. He would have been the name and the face that people had seen and known, but now who is he siding with? Absalom. But we are given something telling us exactly what this is. In verse 12, which is very important. And while Absalom was offering his sacrifices, he sent for Ahithophel, the Gileonite, David's counselor from the city of Giloh. And the conspiracy grew strong, and the people with Absalom kept increasing. The conspiracy grew strong. I kind of take the position of Isaiah. Isaiah chapter 8. Don't call conspiracy all that this people calls conspiracy. Do not fear what they fear, nor be in dread. Now, conspiracy now, I think, has this variant meaning. Often it means some, some crazy idea that people are, are seeking to believe. That it's far-fetched, it's off. It, it, it sometimes has this sense of plot or scheme. But I think this, this word, maybe alliance would be a better word. The, the alliance grew stronger. But even then, I think alliance doesn't really count what this word means. Isaiah says, don't call conspiracy what people call conspiracy. I think treason is the best word here. And the treason grew strong. In Second Kings chapter 14, that's exactly how this word is translated. But the king of Assyria found treachery in Hoshe. For he had sent the messengers to So, king of Egypt, and offered no tribute to the king of Assyria. But as he had done year by year, therefore the king of Assyria shut him up and bound him in prison. Now, interestingly, David was accused of treason when he was fleeing from Saul. And all you have conspired against me. No one discloses to me when my son makes a covenant with the son of Jesse. None of you is sorry for me or discloses to me that my son has stirred up my servant against me to lie in wait as it is this day. Saul is, is complaining to all those around him when he finds out what has happened to Jonathan. That all of you, he says, have conspired against me. And David is the key person behind this, or he continues in, in verse 13. And Saul said to him, Why have you conspired against me, you and the son of Jesse, in that you have given him bread and a sword and have inquired of God for him? that he has risen against me to lie in wait as it is this day. Here, 
Saul looks at what's happening and he says, you all are, you're all committing treason against me. Now we know this to be false. There's no evidence. Many times David would say, what wrong have I done? What, is, what have I done that is deserving of death? There's no evidence. But here you see Absalom. He's planning and scheming, seeking to be able to make himself king. Just as he had his sheep shearing party to be able to carry out what he wanted to accomplish by murdering Amnon, now he's having what you might call a conspiracy party. But it doesn't stop there. The last thing in verse 12, and the people kept increasing. We'll look at this in a few weeks' time. But David writes of this instance as he flees from his son Absalom. He writes in Psalm 3, O Lord, how many are my foes! Many are rising against me. Here you see that a people are increasing. His hearts are stolen and people are now siding not with David, who is the right king on the throne. They're starting to side with this treason that they're committing. We know that David is the anointed king of Israel. We notice that going through first to Samuel, it took a long time, but David was always the rightful king who patiently waited for the Lord. And now we see Absalom coming in. That his fake kingdom is growing. Again, we shouldn't be surprised. One of the the first promises in the Bible is not just the, the bruising of the heel, Christ to come. But there's going to be enmity between the, the seed of the serpent and the seed of the woman. That those you might call the, 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 the children of the devil, as Jesus says, that you are, of your, you are like your father, the devil. And the children of God. There's enmity between these two. And these two, even though they fall underneath the same house, there's still enmity between them. The God's people will increase and decrease throughout history, like a tide can rise and fall. And so to here, you must notice that as Absalom's people are increasing, what does then that mean for David's? What happened with Saul's house and David's house? As David's house grew strong, Saul's house grew weak. And now, Absalom's party is growing. It's not growing from outsiders. It's growing from within. This divide is happening. And in passages like this, it's hard to be able to see Christ. I think it's true. As you look through this passage, where is Christ in this? And I think in passages like this, I think, I think you see the lack of Christ, and therefore what we see is the need for Christ. We actually see that there are people that walk around and look the part, say the words. And some might even be in a, a position of power, of authority. People might start to flock to them, to follow them. But just as you see godly men sin, as David did, you also see ungodly people sin, 
Matthew Henry says this. Whether Absalom formed this design merely in the height of his ambition and fondness to rule, or whether there was not in also malice against his father and revenge for his banishment and confinement, though this punishment was so less than he deserved, does not appear. But generally, that which aims at the crown aims at the head that wears it. Whatever reason Absalom is doing this, he ultimately seeks to be able to take out his father who sits on the rightful throne that he might be able to rule. Now all of this is devised by Absalom. This plotting and this scheming, the chariot buying. But it is yet to fulfill a promise God told would happen to David. And we're beginning to answer the question, who is one of the he's? In 2 Samuel chapter 12. Now therefore the sword shall never depart from your house, because you have despised me and taken the wife of Uriah the Hittite to be your wife. Thus says the Lord, Behold, I will raise up evil against you out of your own house. And I will take your wives before your eyes and give them to your neighbor, and he shall lie with your wives in the sight of the sun. For you did in secretly, but I will do this thing before all of Israel and before the sun. The sword shall never depart. We had these questions about who, who is this person that is going to raise the sword? And now that answer is before us. We know who it is. We don't know how he's going to do it specifically. But we know who it is. But as I said with Aaron Burr, I think that's only the beginning of the exciting tale of what is to happen. Often we, we don't understand the excitement that's going to follow. And I think so too. This is what happens with Absalom. We are just beginning to find out the story of Absalom. Thank you for listening to this sermon from Seven Springs Presbyterian Church. If you want to learn more about us, please find us on Facebook or visit us at sevenspringspresbyterian.com. Seven Springs Presbyterian Church began in 1874 and is a congregation of the Presbyterian Church in America located in Glade Spring, Virginia. Please join us for worship on Sunday at 10 a.m. and 6 p.m. for His glory and His gospel.